All right, so starting this morning, we're going to take a break from our series through the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to begin a brief series in the book of Hebrews for the season of Advent. So if you're not familiar, Advent runs the four Sundays leading up to Christmas morning. So today is the first Sunday of Advent. So series title is The Glory of Christ. Um, It's going to be in the book of Hebrews in really five different passages, even though there's technically four Advent Sundays. Christmas is our last Sunday. And so we're going to look at Hebrews 1, 1 to 3 this morning, the supremacy of the Son. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at chapter 2, verses 9 to 13, the suffering of the Son. Uh, following week, 2, 14 to 18, sharing in flesh and blood. Uh, 4, 14 to 16 on the 18th is the sympathetic Savior. And then on Christmas morning, which is going to be a little bit shorter service because it's Christmas morning, 11 to 12 a.m., um, we're going to look at Hebrews 13, 8, where it says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So since we are going to be in Hebrews, the book of December, um, actually, you got a couple days head start, right? With it being November 27th, can I maybe suggest that you read one chapter of Hebrews from now until Christmas? If you did that, you'd get through the book twice, even if you missed a day or two. Um, and as you do, look for Jesus. Ask the Lord to open your eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. Um, there is, the, the glory of Christ is all over the book of Hebrews, and so it won't be hard to see it, um, but ask the Lord to really show you his glory. If you don't have a reading plan right now, this will serve you well. Uh, if you do, you won't regret this daily add-on, um, so just a little encouragement along those lines. So what, what is Advent? Um, this, the word simply means Coming. So Advent is a time, it's a season marked by many Christians, Christian families. Has anybody ever done an Advent devotional? Anybody, anybody? Okay, a few of you. Um, churches oftentimes mark this on their calendar. It's a, it's, a, it's a time to focus our attention on the glories of the incarnation, Jesus' first coming, his first Advent, and the purposes of his first coming. So it helps us kind of relive the time of anticipation and waiting that characterized those who were longing for the arrival of the Messiah. And it can also tune our hearts to anticipate and long for the second advent. Jesus is coming again. His coming is coming. Second advent. So there's no, you know, biblical command to observe or celebrate Advent, but it can be a very beneficial practice that helps us fix our eyes on Jesus as we run the race that's set before us, especially at a time of year that can get a little frantic and frenetic and it's easy to lose your focus. So in Hebrews 1, 1 to 3 this morning, we're going to see the glory of Christ in creation, revelation, and redemption. Okay, or you could say that we'll see the glory of Christ in his eternal being, his incarnation, and his sacrificial death for our purification. Okay? So my prayer, and maybe you could pray this along with me, is that this series through Advent will actually make Jesus more precious to each of us. The glory of Christ, our dear Savior, is the blazing center of the Bible. 
may he be the blazing center of our lives. Anybody need, you know, reminded of that? Need to return to that regularly? I know I do. So let's draw near and stand close to the blazing center and allow the warmth of that blazing center to banish lukewarmness and coldness toward our glorious God and Savior, which, to connect it to last week, again, Rick Gray with the uh, bow tie game. He's got some good bow tie game. Um, Love that guy. It's going to empower us to live out the greatest commandment. How in the world can you love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength only because he first loved us? So the more that we know and stand close to the fire of his love toward us in Christ, we love because he first loved us. It's going to empower and enable us to love him with all of who we are and love our neighbors as ourselves. All right? So first point, there's actually a little shift on the outline. I sent the outline before Thanksgiving and then changed it. So it'll be right up here. I don't know if you grabbed a sheet out there. It won't take much to change it. Point number four is now part of point number two. So there's four points, all right? So here, point number one, signs to sun. Look at verse one. Long ago, this is Hebrews 1.1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So how does God make himself known to us? How do we know God? Who is he? What's he like? I mean, these are the most, some of the most important questions in life. We can certainly learn some important things from creation. There is a book of nature that can be read, like Psalm 19, 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. Or in Romans 1.20, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived. It's readable ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so they, all of us humans, are without excuse. While the book of nature does show us the glory of God, his power, his creativity, I mean, it it only reveals enough to condemn us for our ungrateful rebellion from our creator. It is not enough to save us It's not enough to give us hope, to tell us how we can have any hope. We can know God only because he's made himself known, not just in creation, but special revelation. He speaks. He's a speaking God. Like Francis Schaeffer used to say, he is there and he is not silent. God's not playing hide and seek. He's not playing hard to get. He's a speaking God. He wants us to know him. And so he's revealed himself through words. Long ago, at many times, in various ways, at many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So he spoke 
to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He spoke through Moses and Samuel, Elijah and Isaiah. He did so in a variety of ways, through angels, through a burning bush, in a tent of meeting, in dreams and visions on a mountaintop, and by a still small voice, among other ways and means. So the emphasis here in Hebrews 1.1 is on the variety of ways that God spoke to his people in the past, but really the emphasis is on the fact that it was piecemeal. It's partial. All of this revelation is incomplete. So verse 2 then follows us. It it kind of follows us on a progression, verse 2. But in these last days, as opposed to long ago, he has spoken to us in contrast to the fathers, by his son. So this letter to the Hebrews was written in the first century, probably before 70 AD. You would imagine that if it was after that, there would have been some allusion to the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem. So, but we're not exactly sure, but certainly in the first century. The title to the Hebrews means that the audience was made up of Jewish Christians, okay? Lots of Old Testament in this book, a book that really helps you put your Bible together, Old and New Testament. So with the arrival, the first advent of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, the last days have arrived. In these last days. That started when Jesus came. And it doesn't end until he comes again. So we are living in the last days, according to the Bible. Okay? So the Messiah and his kingdom, long promised, have arrived. In these last days, he's spoken. Again, this is from the perspective of this author to the letter of Hebrews, first century, by his son, to us, by his son. Literally, it's in son. Okay, there's no article. It's kind of odd. But the point is, God hasn't just spoken through the son, though he did. He's spoken in son. Like, in son language, okay? So one of the implications of this, the way that it's stated here is made clear by um, commentator P.T. O'Brien. He says, God has spoken not simply in Jesus' words, not just through him, but in him, but also in his saving actions, especially his death, resurrection, and exaltation, which have been interpreted for his people in words that can be understood and appropriated. So obvious progression here. But it's not from less to more true. It's not from less reliable to more reliable. All of God's words are true, Old Testament, New Testament. The point is that the revelation of God that was once piecemeal and partial is now full and final. So in these last days is the time to which those Old Testament prophets pointed The fullness of time has arrived. The end times, the time of eschatological end times fulfillment has arrived. Jesus inaugurated the end. The consummation awaits, but it's already begun. The end, which is really leading us to the real beginning, has already begun, okay? So all those at many times in various ways signposts in the Old Testament, all of them were pointing to this time, this person. 
And you can see that as a pattern if you're familiar with the book of Hebrews. Over and over again, the author quotes the Old Testament or makes reference to some aspect of the Old Covenant. And then he shows how Jesus is the fulfillment. This was the shadow. Jesus is the substance. He's the fulfillment of all these hopes, all these promises. Jesus is better, superior. He's the fulfillment of all that was promised and foreshadowed in the past. And God's speech, his self-revelation speaking in son is superior to all the previous modes and forms of communication or revelation. We see here the supremacy of the son. He's superior to all other previous agents, mediators, and spokespeople. So the revelation of God was incomplete and partial until the coming of the Son. Now God has spoken fully and finally. The Son is the Father's supreme self-expression. He is there. Our God is there, and he is not silent, as Francis Schaeffer said. God has spoken. He wants us to hear him loud and clear. Like, we're not alone. He hasn't left us to ourselves to figure it out. We just need to listen. Point number two, agent of creation, sustainer of the universe. Look at verse two. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So Jesus is the agent of creation. Son of God is the agent of creation. He's the one through whom God made all things. So when we think of the world, we think of this third rock from the sun, right? This ball that's spinning through space that we're standing on, sitting on. So the Greek for the world here is aeonos, okay? Literally ages. So it refers actually to the spatial and temporal realms, like the entire universe of space and time. Like Jesus is the agent, not just of this little rock. That's not what's being said here, but he is the agent of creation for all that is, like matter, but also all that is in terms of time, everything that happens, all the ages, Okay? So listen, there's some other texts that say the same thing. This isn't the time to check out with the cross-references. Like, this is earth-shaking, crazy, crazy stuff. So just hear these familiar passages again for the first time, in, in a sense. Like, savor them. Let the weight of them hit you. So John 1, 1 to 3. Very similar statements being made in these three texts I'm going to mention. First, John 1, 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, distinct from and yet one with God. He was in the beginning with God, and then this, all things were made through him. The Son is the agent of creation. Without him was not anything made that was made. Another text, 1 Corinthians 8, 6. For us, 
Christians, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. The Son of God is the agent of creation. Everything was made through him, by him. One more, Colossians 1, 15 to 17. He, the Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Do you see? Not just the third rock from the sun, but all reality was created through him. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Which is a good segue back to Hebrews 1. Did you catch that last phrase in Colossians 1, 17? In him all things hold together. Jesus is not only the agent of creation, he's also the sustainer of the universe. Verse 3, back in Hebrews chapter 1. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Or your translation might say, by his powerful word. So another little, just what is being said here. The Greek behind the universe is the word for all things. Okay, so it's literally all things are upheld by the word of Jesus' power. So that's like really hard for us to get our, like even begin to get our minds around. And, it, and it's, isn't it easy to grow dull even with our kind of kindergarten understanding of, of God's greatness and his glory and everything that he sustains? Um, so it's beyond what we can really get our minds around. And yet even what we do get our minds around, which is mind-blowingly awesome, it's really easy, just like the sun rises every day, and sometimes we're more impressed with our iPhone than with the sun, we can grow blind to glory. So maybe this is a little bit helpful. Um, I gotta go to the web telescope, right, for some help here with what the sun sustains and upholds. So everybody's aware, right, James Webb Space Telescope, you know, putting Hubble um, to shame probably seen some amazing photos that it's provided from space. The cameras can look deeper into space than we've ever seen. 13.6 billion light years distant, we can now see. How far, just for what it's worth here, does light travel in one year? Anybody? Quick math. Just under six trillion miles. Light travels, light travels at 186,000 miles per second, right? In a year, just under 6 trillion miles, 13.6 billion light years distant. Okay? So, I mean, we could tease out a lot of different things, but let me just, little quote here from some Time article. Stars like the rest of us are born, age, and die. And the Carina Nebula, you've probably all seen this picture, it's like this dusty thing, you know, you know what I'm talking about? Like that, um, this is such a good description. You've got to know what I'm talking about. Okay, anyway, 
If it was up there, you would know exactly what I'm talking about. The Carina Nebula located only 7,600 light years from Earth. It's one of the cosmos's great stellar nurseries. Did you know there were stellar nurseries? The formations that look like cliffs are vast peaks of dust and gas, some as tall as seven light years. What? The Hubble Space Telescope had imaged Carina before, but never in the dazzling detail Webb has provided. Young stars are being born in this turbulent region, coalescing out of the surrounding material. As the stars form, they give off enormous amounts of energy that help give the overall nebula its shape. The Lord Jesus Christ, the one who nursed at Mary's teenage breast, is the one who is overseeing all the star nurseries in the universe. He's the one who sustains and delivers each one of these new stars being birthed. That's just one, I mean, massive, but little, mind-numbingly massive thing that he is sustaining as far as the all things that he's constantly sustaining. This is the one who has come for us. This is the one who died for you. Like, this is who you're singing to when you see Jesus strong and kind. Oh, like, that's the strength we're talking about. And oh my goodness, that he is kind? That's the one that died for you. That's the one in whose name you pray. That's the one you're following. His word is so powerful that every galaxy, every star, every orbit, every sunrise, the birth of every calf in the woods, the flight of every falcon, the life of every sparrow, and on and on and on and on is upheld by his word. If he said the word, it would all just implode and go away, like the opposite of the Big Bang. Just not that there was a Big Bang. So Jesus is gentle and lowly. Yes, which is amazing. He is meek and mild. Yes, but he is not weak. He is not to be trifled with. He is Almighty. Like, this is why we come to the Word of God. It's powerful. If the Word of God can create the universe and the almightily powerful Word of Jesus sustains this universe, do you think his word can bring life in your life where there's deadness? Do you think his word can heal where you are broken and wounded? Do you think, do you believe his word can revive where you are feeling spiritually dead and spiritually lifeless? Do you think his word can give you hope if you are feeling hopeless? 
Like, oh, Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Amen? So listen, our God is not the God of the deists. He does not wind up the universe and then back off too transcendent and aloof to get his hands dirty with the, you know, all this little stuff down here, all the mess that we've made. His upholding of the universe is not passive like Atlas. I mean, how's he doing that? I don't know. Like, I can't remember how his arms were, but whatever. Holding the universe. It's not like Atlas. He's actively involved. Carrying, guiding all of human history to its appointed goal. This upholding is nothing less than the providential government of the universe to his appointed end. Like, what? Do you see that description belongs to God alone? Exactly. The providential government of all things, bearing all things and governing them toward their appointed end, belongs to God, the three in one. I mean, don't you want to see the glory of the sun? Let's pray like Moses, show me your glory. This morning, throughout this series, would you pray with me that this would happen? As we read through Hebrews, show us your glory. Point number three, show us your glory. Verse three. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So God revealed his glory at many times and in many ways in the Old Testament. Revealed his glory to Abraham. Remember that smoking pot? Revealed his glory to Moses at the burning bush, Exodus 3. Revealed his glory to Israel and the Egyptians, by the way, at the Exodus. Ten plagues, pillar of cloud and fire, manna in the wilderness, like over and over, like parting the Red Sea, revealing his glory. He revealed his glory to Moses. Moses asked, show me your glory. Okay, I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to cover you. You can't see my face You'll and live. I'm going to speak my name. You want to know who I am? I'm going to tell you. Yahweh, Yahweh, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Exodus 34. So he revealed his glory over and over again. The tabernacle, the temple causing his glory to descend and fill those places. And we could go on and on, right? But all of that, as wonderful and true as it is, it was partial and incomplete. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So radiance of God's glory, exact representation of his nature, I mean, of whom can that be said? <laughs> like, remember, if, if you know the Old Testament, you're steeped in it. Isaiah is like, only God's holy. Holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty, there's, there's no one like him. To whom will you compare me? That's his glory. He's in a class by himself. We're made in the image of God, sure, but we're merely moons to the sun. We are completely dependent, completely derivative. That's not what's being said here. He is the radiance of the glory of God. When you see the sun shining, what are you seeing? The sun. 
The radiant splendor of the sun is meeting your eyes. When God wants his glory to shine in visible fullness, what do we see? Jesus. He is the visible image of the invisible God. Jesus is the personified glory of God. God's glorious attributes are made visible in Jesus Christ. This is a massive statement of the oneness of the Son with the Father. And then the writer of the Hebrews to the Hebrews goes on to show us more of the glory of Christ. He's also the exact imprint of his nature. So this is God's very nature, the implication of him being God, radiance of his glory, but also distinct from God because there's the stamp and the imprint. These words come from the realm of coinage in the first century. The imprint left on metal was the exact character of the stamp. Actually, the word for imprint is the word that we get our English word character from. So Jesus is the very stamp of God's nature. That word for nature, Sorry for all these word things, but, you know, they actually have some connection with other things that I guess might be helpful to help you remember. The word for nature is hypostasis. Anybody in the system, have you guys in the systematic class gotten to the hypostatic union yet? Anybody ever heard that phrase? Don't be ashamed to raise your hand at, you know, big theological phrases. Okay, so hypostatic nature, hypostatic union just means the union, this mysterious union of divine and human, real divine human natures joined in Christ. So, substance or essence or nature, okay? So, this is the exact imprint of his essence, his nature, his who he is. So the point is that Jesus really is the exact character. He really is the imprint of God's substance or essence. He doesn't merely appear as such. He is the embodiment of God as he really is. He is God in the flesh, Emmanuel. Merry Christmas. <laughs> so there are echoes, echoes here of the mysteries of the oneness and the threeness, the distinctiveness that's present in the Trinity. Son is the radiance of the glory of God, oneness, because only the sun is what you see when it radiates, but also the exact imprint distinction from the Father. So bottom line is this. If you want to see the sun, I'm sorry, <laughs> if you want to see the Father, look at the sun. To see the sun is to see the Father. If you turn away from Jesus, you can't know God, which is actually what the danger was for these Hebrews. This is how much God wanted us to know him. He is not playing hard to, hard to get. He's not playing hide and seek with us. And don't you love to see the glory of Christ? He is, in visible form, the reality behind this universe. He's the one guiding everything according to the counsel of his will. I mean, it can feel, even as Josh mentioned, like, child is sick and you're scared and you can feel like things are random and out of control. You read the news. You can feel like there's some Jekyll and Hyde behind the universe as far as ultimate reality. 
or maybe malevolent will or indifference? No. What is God like? What is the reality behind this world? If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Look at the radiant sun. So who is in charge here? Who's in the driver's seat? God is. Do you want to know his character, his nature? Look to the sun. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. And what is the most important thing he said? Point number four, it is finished. And we're going to sing that song again, by the way, at the end. Verse three, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So listen, brothers and sisters, the revelation of the glory of God is not supremely found in some star nursery 7,600 light years away or in some hitherto undiscovered galaxy 14 billion light years away, though there's plenty of glory revealed in that. The revelation of the glory of God, who he is, shines most brightly on a little hill in Jerusalem where a peasant carpenter turned rabbi was murdered 2,000 years ago. And we will never plumb the depth of that glorious display. But listen, to begin to see the beauty, the manifold, panoramic beauty of God's glory, you've got to first feel, first see and feel the ugliness of our defilement. Okay, so began back in the garden. Don't check out here. We need to remember these things. We need to believe these things. This is the central storyline, our storyline. So it began back in the garden. Adam and Eve, they were naked and unashamed. They had nothing to hide. They were totally free. They bore no burdens of guilt or shame until they did. Their sin stained their souls and the souls of all their offspring, except one. We know this all too well, don't we? It starts early. I mean, small children can be like ingloriously, famously shameless. You guys tracking with me here? Kind of running about naked at inopportune times to the embarrassment of their parents. But even small children start to hide. They know they're guilty. They know they don't want some of the things they do to see the light of day. They don't want others to see it either. They don't want to see the dirt and the stain and the defilement on their souls. We are no longer living naked and unashamed. Everybody's grabbing fig leaves.
That's all of us. We resonate with Lady Macbeth's frantic cry, out, out, damn spot. We know we're dirty and defiled and guilty. We can try to clean ourselves up, but our best efforts always fall short. We can't atone for our sins. We can't cleanse our own conscience. It is so much easier for an oil slick to be spilled and spread than to be cleaned up. It's kind of like that. Sin is a plague. It's a contagion. It's pollution and corruption of the soul. I love this book by Cornelius Plantinga, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. In one chapter, he writes this, corruption is thus a dynamic motif in the Christian understanding of sin. It is not so much a particular sin as the multiplying power of all sin to spoil a good creation and to breach its defenses against invaders. Corruption is spiritual AIDS. The mysterious, systemic, infectious, and progressive attack on our spiritual immune system that eventually breaks it down and opens the way for hordes of opportunistic sins. These make life progressively more miserable. Conceit, for instance, typically generates envies of rivals, a nasty form of resentment that eats away at the envier. Sin, as Augustine says, becomes the punishment of sin. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets. He gave our forefathers a provisional means of expiation, like getting rid of the stain, of the sin. The sacrificial system was given by God as a temporary, provisional, symbolic means by which sin could be atoned for. But it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to actually take away sins. We read that in Hebrews 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The priest stood, stood, year after year, offering sacrifices, first for their own sins, then for the sins of the people. But it was ultimately ineffective. The scapegoat is a powerful important image, right? Like lay hands on the head of that goat, send it off into the wilderness, and obviously it would die. But the whole point was God's mercy would send away our sins from us on the head of another in our place so that we could be cleansed, we could be free of our sin. But it was only a temporary provision. It was a signpost pointing in bold letters to the need for better blood, for a better sacrifice, for a better priest, for a better mercy seat, a better temple, and a better covenant. And that's what Jesus, God's son, the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of God's nature came to do. His blood can make the foulest clean. Though our sins be as scarlet, he can wash our souls white as snow. 
So if you are not yet in Christ, you can turn from your sins today and run to Jesus and he can make the foulest clean. In fact, we're gonna sing a song that might initially throw you off if you haven't heard it before. You know, at Christmas we sing, oh come all ye faithful, except like, who's that? Like, where's that group? We're going to sing, come, how's it, what's the title? Come all you unfaithful. Now there's the gospel, and then by God's grace, we can become faithful, not perfect, so that we come and adore him. Okay, great. We'll put them together. But you don't need to get cleaned up to take a bath. His blood can make the foulest clean. Jesus is the true scapegoat. Our sins on his head. And so because of Jesus, God sends our sins away for real as far as the east is from the west. Jesus has made purification for sins. It is done. It is finished. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down. Why did he sit down? Because his work of atonement was finished. Do you believe that? His work of atonement is finished. He doesn't love you more on your good days, and he barely puts up with you on your bad days. His work is finished. He knew what he was getting into when he saved you in the first place. Past, present, future sins, all paid for, all covered by the blood of Jesus. Listen, Jesus is not pacing in heaven. He is seated, in control, sovereign. And he's seated in, at the right hand of the Father. Like, there's like one passage in the Old Testament, most likely, um, where someone is enthroned beside God. Psalm 110 which is alluded to here. This is unparalleled power and glory. This is our surpassingly glorious priest king who made sacrificial provision for our sins and then sat down in his royal place as king of kings at the right hand of God the Father. That's why he's in the order of Melchizedek. Keep going in Hebrews and you'll read about him, right? So back to Hebrews 10, we read it together. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That is gospel logic right there. You have been perfected for all time. And because of God's grace in your life, to make you perfect in God's sight positionally, you are being sanctified. Your perfection is not contingent, like you better be good enough or you're not going to get. No, because you've already been accepted, now you're being changed. Therefore, this is huge, like exhortation in Hebrews. Therefore, we must pay closer attention, much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. So there's a sermon, apparently, that Dick Lucas once preached. He's an English pastor that 
died some years ago. And he recounted an imaginary conversation between an early Christian and her neighbor in Rome. Ah, the neighbor says, I hear you are religious. Great, religion is a good thing. Where's your temple or holy place? We don't have a temple, replies the Christian. Jesus is our temple. No temple? But where do your priests work and do their ritual? We don't have any priests or to mediate the presence of God, replies the Christian. Jesus is our priest. No priests? But where do you offer your sacrifices to acquire the favor of your God? We don't need a sacrifice, replies the Christian. Jesus is our sacrifice. What kind of religion is this, sputters the pagan neighbor. And the answer is that it's no kind of religion at all. The law says, do this and you will live. The gospel says, it is done. Trust this and you will live. We trust in Christ's work, not our own. It is finished. It's done. So, brothers and sisters, let's savor the supremacy and the glory of the Son, our Savior. He is the prophet mediating God's full and final word to us, right? He is the highest of high priests. We'll look at that in a couple weeks. Mediating the cleansing mercy of God to us defiled sinners. He is the king of kings, seated at the Father's right hand as the sovereign mediator of God's righteous mercy and overflowing love. Listen, he created the world and he sustains it. When it was formless and void, chaotic and empty, surely he can help you and me when our worlds are chaotic and empty. He can order the chaos and fill the emptiness. He sustains the entire universe by his powerful word. Surely he can sustain you and me in times of stress and trial and temptation. I love this quote by Ray Brown, and I'll finish with this. These first century readers would be less likely to turn from him in adversity if they had looked to him in adoration. The opening sentences of the letter are designed to bring them and us to our knees. Only then can we hope to stand firmly on our feet. We, you and me, will be less likely to turn from him in adversity if we look to him in adoration. So may these truths bring us to our knees so we can stand firmly on our feet and run the race that's set before us with our eyes fixed on Jesus. Amen? All right, we're going to pray and then sing, O come, all you unfaithful, and it is finished. Lord Jesus, we believe. Help our unbelief. Help us to see your glory and be changed by it and empowered by it and encouraged by it to run the race that's set before us. In your name we pray, amen.